Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast today we will be talking with shelly prosco who is kind of a legend in the field of yoga therapy she's always on the cutting edge she's an expert in pelvic pain and pelvic care she also has written a wonderful book with Neil Pearson and also Marlisa Sullivan on pain care and yoga. And she's an expert in having self-compassion for both us as the practitioner, but also teaching our clients how to have self-compassion. And sometimes we kind of skip over things like self-compassion, thinking that's kind of the fluff. <laughs> We don't really need to do that. We need to get down to business and figure out how to get rid of that pain or help this person's incontinence or whatever it is. And interestingly, as Shelly and I talk about in this interview, the name of the game is checking in, having self-awareness, understanding that you're suffering and I'm suffering and we're suffering, and then giving ourselves that tenderness and, and realizing we're not alone, that everyone suffers. And how can we kind of lean into that vulnerability and come out the other side with self-compassion? So Shelly takes a lot of this interview to talk to us about what are the misconceptions of self-compassion? What are the three main components as outlined by Kristen Neff? Many of you know Kristen Neff. What is some of the research on self-compassion and mental health? And I just think it's a lovely interview. And not to mention that when I asked Shelly if she could give us a free gift for our listeners, because if you look in the show notes, every week we give amazing free gifts for every single guest they contribute. Shelly had about four or five like mind-blowing gifts that she's willing to give away for free. So be sure to sign up for the free gift. <laughs> and then it's always the second week of the month we send the free gifts out for the whole month in a newsletter. So you don't want to miss that. One other thing that I just want to throw in here as we talk about the three components of self-awareness is that we at the Optimal State have a new mobile app and it's in beta testing, but we will definitely take your feedback and we're working to perfect it. And this app, the whole point of it is for you and your clients to develop more self-awareness according to the theories of Sankhya philosophy, yoga philosophy, and Ayurveda. So it's all designed around the gunas and mental health. It's the only app I know out there that is doing something so unique in terms of mental health. And there's also different assessments for the gunas and how it relates to pain, the gunas and how your body image is. 
So I just wanted to point that out. If you go to the Android store or the Apple store, you can download it for free and try it out and see what you think. If you want to give us feedback, we're open. But I wanted to just tell you that tool is out there. And one of the really cool things about it is that your client could track their mental, emotional, physical, somatic pain states, body image states, and they could actually send you their data for the last three days or a week or a month before their lesson so that you had a really accurate picture of how do they feel in the mornings when they get up according to the gunas or how do they feel in the evenings when they're ready to go to bed in terms of their pain or their mental health. So it's called Optimal State App, and we would love for you to try it out. We're really excited. We took four years to develop it, and now it is here, and that's our free gift to you. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, we would love your support because we are trying to give a lot of value for free, knowing that this pandemic has been really tough on people and we want to keep you nourished. So if you have a little extra, you could nourish us also on Patreon. All right. Have a great day. And here we go into our interview with Shelly Prosco. Shelly Prosco with us today, coming straight from Western Canada in a town called Sylvan Lake. Welcome, Shelly. Thank you. So good to be here. Most of you know Shelly. She's like a rock star in the world of yoga therapy. <laughs> and I think many people have taken workshops with Shelly on chronic pain. She's written an amazing book on chronic pain with some co-authors and always teaching us so much about pelvic health. Shelly, you were my very first yoga therapy pelvic health teacher and i loved every moment of learning with you and i think more recently you've really really embraced all of the literature and research and application of the study of self-compassion so where would you like to begin today Ooh, where to start well just thank you so much for this space this time you know, just I've listened to some of the episodes. I have way more in queue and just what you're doing for yoga therapy and just for everybody. So, and thank you for giving me a platform and a voice to share. So I think I'll just maybe start there. Like, you know, I've been working many years, like many of the other guests on your podcast of trying to get some of these messages out. I became a, a physical therapist. Uh, I got my degree in 1998. And I was already practicing yoga several years before that. But I really started the continuing education provider role only about 10 years ago. So although I've been a clinician for 24 years, I really, the, the you know, the being a continuing education provider and trying to help yoga professionals and other healthcare professionals on integrating yoga principles and practices into pain care, as you mentioned, into pelvic health care, as you mentioned, with this foundation of compassion and self-compassion. You know, that sort of has been my, my passion over the last 10 years. And I still have a small clinical practice, but it's not really my primary role anymore. Now I'm, I'm more into the teaching aspect. So I don't know from there, if you want to start, if, if anything well, inspires you, where you want to go from there. Course. Okay. <laughs> So what happened? Like, let's just take self-compassion because I think that's a really interesting topic that other guests haven't really gone into yet. Like at what moment and, and what happened that you thought, oh my goodness, I really want to learn more about this was, did you hear Kristen Neff talk or did you have an experience in your own life? What, what was the magic behind really wanting to understand the importance of self-compassion, which I agree with you, is the main ingredient for healing, full stop. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had that question asked to me before, and I go on and on for about five or 10 minutes because there's no one event. There's no one clear memory, but I have a few, so I'll try to keep it concise. So one of the first memories is 
back when I was approached by some book publishers to write a book on something that I was doing. So I would present at Sitar on public health, as you know, and some different topics. And I wasn't really ready and I wasn't really sure. And then Marlisa Sullivan, as you know, and we all know her very well. So we're good friends and colleagues. So she came to me and said, hey, you know, let's you know, do you want to do something together? She wanted to do a book on pain. And then of course, Neil Pearson, another colleague and friend, and we've go way back since gosh, probably 15 or more years now. And, and I've learned so much for, from him. And so we were like, well, maybe Neil can be in this too. But I, I bring up the book because it was when we started thinking about the book and the different topics and the different chapters and who was going to write what and what other contributors might we want in this idea of yoga therapy in chronic pain care. And so for me, I knew that I wanted to write something about compassion and compassionate pain care for the healthcare provider, the yoga therapist, for the person in pain. And that is from years of working with people in pain where I thought that I had biases and where I did have biases. There's certain things that are like people in pain have certain stigmas that go along with it. It really can be very challenging to be patient and to feel even a sense of compassion or empathy in certain situations. It can be really challenging when your values don't line up with the person you're working with, when your worldviews are different, when you think that you're doing all you can, but maybe the, the patient or the client isn't doing their part. And so those years of being sort of frustrated with that and being disappointed in myself for like, why can't I connect with this person? Why can't I get over that barrier of, of I don't feel just to be very blunt with you, I don't feel kind towards them. Of course, professionally, I'm always kind, but I didn't feel it in my heart. And I just, that really bothered me. And so coming to the, the book piece now, I knew I wanted to write something about all that I've learned and how yoga has helped me be more compassionate for people in pain that I'm working with, and also how it can help the clinician or the yoga therapist in helping to prevent burnout and some of the things that our own personal yoga practice can help. And so the self-compassion, it didn't exactly come in in that language right then and there. It wasn't until I started preparing for this chapter and looking at all the orientations of compassion, how you have to be able to give and to receive, and then also give and to receive to yourself. That's when I came across more of Kristen Neff's work. Actually, I think I came across her work a little earlier because I was doing a, a retreat for healthcare providers on professional burnout and how to prevent that and how to use yoga. And so then I came across Kristen Neff's self-compassion work and that, do you see the link there with the book chapter? I do, yes. So then the book chapter was when I really dove in in the research and came across even more of Kristen Neff's work. Thank you for putting that up. And maybe I'll stop there, I could go on, but that, that was the start. And other than, well, I do want to say this other thing is when I started learning more and more about this and doing the self-compassion practices, then a whole new world opened up and I realized how low I was in self-compassion. I didn't realize it and self-criticism and the strategies that I was using to be successful, you know, and to get a PT degree and, you know, get, do this and that and all these things and professional figure skater and you know, just all the things in life, happy life. And I, I used the strategy that worked for me. So I thought was this self-critical voice. Mm-hmm. So when I started doing these practices and learning more, it opened up a whole new world and maybe I'll stop there. After hearing all that you have to say, one of my questions and I, I always throw in these questions that aren't on the sheet, so you can always refuse them, but do you think it's possible to truly have compassion for your client if you haven't learned how to have compassion for yourself? Ooh, that's a really good question. Let me think about that for a moment. Um, you know, I think the, the the words that are sticking out to me, like, is true. They you know, like that's what you said, true compassion. So I guess that's where we might debate. Like, I do, I do think that you can have, absolutely, I think you can have compassion for someone else without, you know, and I don't think it's 
linear. Like I think it's a continuum. So I don't think it's like you don't have, if you don't have self-compassion for yourself, you can't have compassion for another person. I don't think it really works that way. I think it's a continuum. So, but you know, I think we do have some research that shows the more we train self-compassion, it does show an increase in care and compassion and concern for others. Mm. So that's interesting. So yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't answer that very well, but no. it's, it is very, it, and, it, and to speak to that, I will speak to that my own experience. It has helped me. Now you would have to ask the people I serve mm-hmm. <laughs> if they think I'm offering compassionate care. That's important. I can't say, you know, how compassionate I am. You have to ask the receiver. But I would say just from my observation that, and how I feel on the inside, the self-compassion practices for the last few years, Amy, absolutely. It has helped me be less judgmental and all those things that I was to myself, lo and behold, I found out, oh, I'm actually doing that to others and I don't realize it. I am judging them. I do think that, you know, maybe the barriers why they aren't continuing, you know, their home practice or they're not doing the things that we agree to, or maybe it seems that that their version of the truth is changing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of those things, I realize, oh wow, those accusations or those those stigmatizations and things that I would judge or even even, yeah, accusations or blaming the person in my own heart, that was what I was doing to myself. So once that shifts, and that's a work in progress, of course, I do notice oh, much more love for someone who maybe doesn't have the same worldview or values as me. I, I do. So that's just my own experience. I just think anything we haven't really worked on in ourselves, we tend to project onto other people. So I'm not saying it can't happen, but I, I think if we do our work around self-compassion, probably more likely that we'll give true compassion to others. I would agree. Yeah. On a deeper level, like I said, it's a continuum. So I still think we can be wonderful, fabulous serving Mm -hmm. therapists and really help someone. And we can be compassionate to a degree. That said, I agree. If we're low in self-compassion, I do think that would um, negatively affect the compassionate care that we're trying to give. And isn't it, interesting that you and I are are women in probably our 40s and 50s, somewhere around there. I'm 50 this year. Woohoo! Yeah. Uh, Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Just that, you know, nobody ever taught me that until I ran across Kristen Neff's work. It was shocking to me, like, why have I not learned this in my lifetime? And I don't think most people have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we speak to some of the misconceptions? Sure. Go for it. I think think that's some of the reasons why maybe we haven't is I think part of it is because we think it's equated to, you know, being indulgent, Mm -hmm. self-indulgent, or it's sort of a soft skill and it's letting yourself off the hook. Mm. And it's the only strategy, as I alluded to earlier, the strategy that often works for us and can speak to, you know, us here in North America and our culture, the strategy I think that often works for us is that heavy hand, like that self-criticism. And the research shows that it does work in the short term or it, it can work, mm. right? That, that tone of voice, like, oh, Shelly, come on, get your head on straight. Like, seriously, like all that tone and that self-talk and that has helped many of us change our behavior. And even as a parent, I'm not a parent, but as a parent, that's often the strategy we use with our children. And as a child, that's often how strategies, how, you know, we're, we've been parented. And it's this idea of the tough love that will help change the behavior. And like I said, the research shows that it actually does change or it can change the behavior in the short term. However, two things, the research shows that it's more associated with anxiety and I can attest to that. And it's less sustainable. And it's coming from a place of fear, not being enough, not being good enough, and uh, competitiveness, maybe with others, but also just with yourself. And I can attest to that. And self-compassion, we have the research now that shows it actually is a very strong motivator to change our behavior. And the theory is that it's because it's coming from a genuine place of love and concern for yourself, 
So you want to take good care of yourself. And so then the change in behavior is now more sustainable because it is, like I said, coming from a place of, of genuine love and care and concern. And the research shows it's not associated with anxiety, like mm-hmm. self-criticism motivator to changes. So that really, you know, changed my whole perspective too. And it was kind of hard to, but there was layers for me and there still is, like I said, it's a work in progress, but I would do these practices and I think, okay, I'm kind of getting this now. And then something else would happen in life. And I would see, okay, there it is again. <laughs> it's, you know, I, it's like a whack-a-mole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. So I really like the, you know, those, I think one of the reasons why we just maybe don't take it seriously or haven't heard of it is because we just don't associate it with positive behavior change. We think it's, you know, just like I said, oh, get, it'll, you'll be a couch potato or you'll be self-indulgent or, and some people too, there's some research, another barrier to receiving it is would be some of us don't think we deserve it. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting one too. Um, there could be all kinds of reasons where, you know, there might be past shame or guilt and we just don't feel that, that we are deserving of compassion from others or from ourselves. So that might be applicable to some people as well you and I both train yoga therapists. And and when I talk with them about self-compassion, some of them have such a strong inner voice that is kind of competitive and kind of pushing that they say, but you can't just let people off the hook. You can't just let them not do their practice or not do the lifestyle change. Like basically if we don't push them, they're not going to do it. What do you say to that? Well, that's the idea that, you know, we have to define like, well, what do we mean by compassion? So, you know, when we're looking at compassion, it has to include yourself and it has to be ultimately right action towards the greater good for yourself. So if it's not including that, and if it's including things like let yourself off the hook and now don't, that's not compassion then, Mm. right? So true compassion is really looking at your struggling, you know, noticing that you're struggling and you're suffering and then having the motivation to alleviate that and taking the, the actions that you need to then alleviate that struggle and suffering and to help you move and progress towards, you know, like I said, better right action in line with your values. And, and so if it's not doing that, so if the person is, not participating in their home practice and so forth, the compassionate response to that would be to wholeheartedly go through the ingredients of compassion, which I can go through briefly, but continue to help prime for compassion to emerge from that relationship that you're having with them in that moment. So the the job is how can we help that person increase the compassion for themselves so that they have that genuine care and concern for themselves. And then what are the barriers? So why aren't they participating right. in the home practice? Is it there's, and that's a whole other podcast or the things they're doing meaningful value. Have we really gotten to the root of what matters most to them? Or did we just ask what's the matter? I love that, you know, moving from what's the matter to what matters most to you? So is it, so put it on us as the therapist, you know, what, how can we contribute to helping the person? And it might not even be to continue with that home practice. It might be something, what are other barriers, you know, accessibility or resources or support or what's going on socially in their life. And, you know, so it's our job to really look at what's going on here. So I think that's how I would, I would answer that is that a true compassionate response is indeed to help figure out how can I serve this person? What are their needs? And maybe we do, maybe they don't know them, you know? Yeah. And so this I is a process, it. right? A process. I was okay. going to say process oriented instead of outcome oriented, instead of like, why aren't you doing your home practice? You know, which is kind of accusational and judgmental and assuming the worst instead of that saying maybe what are the barriers? What, what do you find gets in the way? What comes up 
So how can I help you more? How can yeah. I, how can I help you help yourself? Yes, exactly. Yeah. What can we do? Curiosity comes to mind. Just highlight that, put in a sticky note everywhere in your room. Just curiosity, curiosity. How can I serve? How can I serve? Yeah, that's, that's, so let's, let's pretend I'm your client and I've shown up for the fourth week in a row without doing anything I promised. And I'm feeling ashamed and you're, you are recognizing that I am having trouble achieving my own goals. And you are going to teach me a little bit about self-compassion. What would you say to me? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just throwing like, them at you. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. It's good. I'm um, like most therapists. I'm someone who's, you know, in the moment and go with the flow and then whatever comes out, comes out. So sometimes these are, but let me, let me see. Okay. So the first thing that I do, I put that in air quotes, is to help me figure out an answer, because I want to respond here, right? Give someone a valuable mm-hmm. tip and everyone listening. So the first thing I do is really, Amy, it's like, it's nothing. That sounds kind of weird, but like, I really, when I'm hearing this and I have all these ideas, oh, I know it sounds like, you know, she's lacking self-compassion and I take a breath and I sit back and I, I go to that place of curiosity. And so I give the person space. So that might not be the exactly the answer you're looking for, but that's, no, the, I love that's it. the first part of it. I have to do that. Cause if I don't, I mean, to me, that's just what this is all about. You're giving them space. And so then what happens is in that space, and I, I don't know the question I might ask, you know, tell me more, or I just, you know, prompt them to tell me more. And, and then it gives them space. And usually within that response, I can feed off that. And then it helps me, you know, how, how, where's there maybe a little something, something I can share. So that, that would be the first, and it's the key and very, very important part. And then sort of the next part. So let's say, um, what might I say then as a doorway in, or how about what have I done in the past? I'm a little better at that maybe. So one thing I remember I've done in the last, not too, maybe about a year or two ago, this one client comes to mind. It was a person who was having a lot of trouble or had a lot of, of shame and guilt because he couldn't do the things around the house that he thought he should like the yard work and he had to do stuff in the garage and it was many many years someone who had chronic persistent pain and anyways this particular story that he came to to tell me he was so down on himself for not doing this certain project and though i'd worked with him for a long time and i was I was surprised at some of the saddened and surprised at some of the words like that they were so demeaning towards himself. So again, I gave him space and didn't try to correct it. Didn't try to fix it. I just listened. That is so key. Stephen Porges tells us not to rush to fix because when we rush to fix the, the person's physiological defense mechanisms can rush in because they feel like, maybe they're not validated or weren't heard or what have you. And that can do more harm than good. So I remember just really listening. And like I said, I had to take a breath and calm down and not fix. And then after that, when it felt right and whatever was said, I just offered this idea of self-compassion and I brought in my experience. So I said, you know, and he knew I had wrote this book. Mm-hmm. And really, he really loved the first chapter in it by Gilletta Belton. That's Living- my favorite yeah. chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I and love it. Really, I think that was the only one that he had read and he had said that he loved it. And he, yeah, so I would, I feel like I'm going on a tangent. I'll stay focused. So I sort of brought that in. So I said, you, you know, that book and, and I said, you know, this is work that I've done and I have a chapter in there about self-compassion and it can be really helpful. And then I just asked him if, he'd be willing to learn more. And it was really just that simple. And he said, you know, sure. And so at that point, I, I actually gave him Kristen Neff's website and I had said that he could look through it and he's someone that does look through resources. So that was another thing I already knew about him. I wouldn't necessarily do that with someone who maybe wouldn't look it up, but he, we do that a lot in our relationship in that moment. I said, there are three components. And so I just basically very, very briefly said, self-compassion from what we know can actually help you be a little bit more aware that you're struggling. And there's some techniques and practices 
you know, that might help you with these really struggling times. And the, I think the most, the key point was that practices aren't meant to fix or make you feel better. They're there because you're struggling and because you feel bad. So I think that he liked that I wasn't trying to change anything. And so I just shared that really quickly, I think in a minute. And I said, it's pretty simple. The three components are just first being aware that you're struggling. So that's number one, aware. He was listening. He was into it. So I kept going. That's why I shared the three because he was, he was open. And then there's another piece just to know that you're not alone. And so there's, lots of other people out there who share the same kind of feelings of shame and guilt and it's normal. And so that was it. And then finally, the third one is helping you find something you can do just to give you some compassion, some kind of kindness towards yourself. And then I think I, usually I tell people here, and I think I probably said this to him was that's a hard thing to do. And if you, after you read some of this stuff, if you want, I can help you and we can have some, and I, I bring a lot of lightness and joy and we can have some fun with it. And if you want, and so I just, that was it. It was quite brief, way more brief than I just spent here. Then he went home and he looked it up and he, oh, and it was just, he found it really valuable. And then the next session or maybe the one after, I can't remember, I offered to do the self-compassion letter. There, you can write a letter, a love letter to yourself. or And um, so then I said, okay, you want to try that? He went back a few weeks later, he comes back and he couldn't do it. He's like, there's no way I'm doing that. It was too awkward. It felt horrible, but he ended up writing a letter to a family member that he said it was a long overdue letter that he wanted to write to this family member who happened to be having a terminal illness and was on, you know, not going to be around for a while. So anyways, he was, he was really, really appreciative and he really valued and got a lot of writing this letter to this other person that came from all of that and very healing. And in the end, the larger story is it's all a process as you know, but all of that has been helpful in this particular person's journey and in helping him live with his pain better with more ease and move with more ease and return to some of these functions like working in the garage, doing yard work. This is all really important pieces of that progress that he made. You know, it's so interesting because I don't think people really put it together in their head that by becoming aware that you're suffering, knowing that this happens to every human on earth and that you can be tender with yourself, Mm -hmm. like, I don't think people put that together with, I will be able to move better. I will not have as much chronic pain. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And this is what's sometimes challenging as a teacher. I'm sure you come across this too, or maybe I should ask you if you come across this, but sometimes it's hard to put these things in words. And and that's one thing I'm working on as a continuing education provider for professionals is how can I, how can I get these messages across more? How can I link these things together more? You know, it's hard to, I don't know about you, but it's, it's sometimes hard to teach, but I guess through story is helpful and through examples. So I'm working, you know, on, on doing that. I tend to be quite conceptual and I bring in all the science and the evidence, which people love and appreciate, but it's like, okay, now the next step of how does this all come together? And people like you and I that have been doing this for a long time, we have a lot of clinical experience. So we have the experience of how it all comes together, but it's so convoluted and it's so interdependent to, to put it into, you know, concrete words to actually say, this is how it's related, or I don't know. Do you find it challenging or is that just me? You know, is it my Vata brain? (laughs) No, no, no. I work with a lot of uh, college golfers and the, the part of those three steps that just, I can just see the stress melting away is the second one. When I say this happens to all college athletes, you're not alone. Like there's a whole layer of shame or guilt or something that comes off because I think, especially in golf, they're embarrassed if, if they, you know, shank it off into the woods or into the water or something. And in their minds, they're all alone and no other golfer has ever done that in front of a crowd. And it's so humiliating. So just 
to take that pressure off and be like, look, this is human. We all have this. I just see a huge backpack come off them at that moment. Yeah. And then what does that do? So now I'm getting on, you know, my sort of neurophysiology brain, like that will calm your nervous system, make you feel safe. Like all that stuff that you've talked about on your podcast and with Marlisa and Sue Carter and Stephen Porges, I've listened to those, you know, all of, so what does that do? As soon as you feel like that anxiety melts, you know, the common humanity, the self-kindness, the, all that stuff. And then that will shift your physiology and that can shift your muscle tension. So that's going to shift how you do the next swing. Right. If you're safe and playful, I mean, look at any, any athlete and I'm sure even doing have to be an athlete. Many of us can probably attest to this, but as a competitive figure skater, I mean, that absolutely that when, you know, when you fall over the ice and you, you've practiced this for years and years and you've got your program, your four minute program down and you've done it a gazillion times. And then you go to do the, you know, the program and you just fall all over the place because of the nerves and the tension. Um, so the self-compassion piece, I wish I had known that when I competed because when, what you can do then is after you fall, so you have that first jump and you fall, what we often see is the rest of your program is, right. your, um, although I did learn cause we did a lot of sports psychology and stuff. So you do learn to stay present task at hand. So after you do that fall, you get up and you're focused and you're present and you can just brush that off and have a remaining amazing performance. But the self-compassion piece, I think, you know, and then there's so many reasons why someone can be self-compassionate or resilient or whatever, or regulate in one moment and maybe have some progress and do really good. And then all of a sudden another situation comes and all those tools, all that, that we learned out the window. Yep. All have had that. And that's what I love about self-compassion. That's why I wish I would have known about it before because the times when maybe I wasn't able to regulate and just, Oh, you know, everything is just not working out and I'm doing all the things that I don't want to do or saying the things I shouldn't or not saying things that like, just, it's just, I'm really dysregulated. I wish I knew so that I could have brought in that self-compassion. And then almost immediately when you do that practice, it just, it doesn't make things better. Like Krista Neff always says, you don't do it to fix anything or to get better in the moment you do it because you are struggling and that's all it's like just it's just a cup it's just a warm sort of hug mm. yeah so i think that's really important you've pointed that out twice now that it's not yeah. to get anywhere it's to comfort yourself in that moment and full stop there's nothing you know but the beauty of that as you said is it changes blood flow regulation it changes muscle tension which impacts range of motion which impacts dexterity like it's funny how by just doing it because it's the right thing to do to comfort yourself, you probably will get a better outcome. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the caveat here. And we don't have the research yet. I would love future research to go that route, but we don't have the research showing self-compassion practices on some of those things like blood flow or heart rate. I would love one on heart rate variability. Mm, Like I think movement would be cool if you could like before and after, but we do have research on self-compassion practices, um, reducing pain, reducing anxiety, depression type symptoms, or I think even in general, anxiety and depression as a diagnosis, helping to reduce the symptoms. There's a whole host, it's in the book chapter, but a lot of research outcomes on self-compassion practices, reducing rumination and catastrophization that can sometimes happen. So it's powerful. Oh, I just, I, this to me, I think compassion, I think is the, is the foundation and the root of everything. Of course, I'm passionate about it and I'm biased, but I think that's the root and the foundation and and compassion is not compassion unless it includes yourself. So self-compassion is, it's, it's just a tangent or a, uh, not a tangent, a branch. Mm-hmm. Compassion includes self-compassion. I, I mean, I really do believe what you just said. And the reason I believe that is because in yoga, we really, at the highest levels, are realizing that we are not disconnected from each other, from Mother Earth, from our actions and our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Like 
it's not disconnected. And so it only makes sense that understanding the other's perspective, putting yourself in their shoes, noticing that everyone is suffering just like I'm suffering Mm -hmm. and being tender towards ourselves and others. Like it just makes sense that that would help us understand how interconnected we all are. Right. And one thing that comes to mind, because this is usually a question that comes up or a reflection people are listening is when you look at compassion, it's, it's a wisdom that emerges and you had said it's a process and that's some people talk about that. Joan Halifax talks about that. And that's what I have in the book chapter, the, the ingredients that prime for compassion, wisdom to emerge from whatever given situation you have. And that, and all, what's so interesting is all of those ingredients. It's all, it's all yoga. It's all yoga philosophy and practices. So that, and I, I make that link in the book chapter, but what I think is really important to emphasize is compassion is a wisdom that emerges with all these ingredients and it includes boundaries. So it, it's skill in action. Yes. Compassion, it's an action, it's a behavior and it's skill in action. So it, it isn't about being nice and it isn't about, you know, you don't, you can't conflate this compassion wisdom from the context of that situation to let's just love all beings and be kind. And, and it's like, well, let's break down some words. Of course, what does love mean? And we have to think of, of all these words, but to break down the compassion word, it includes boundaries. It includes what is the best to serve myself in this situation, to serve the person I'm working with, to serve the, the larger context of this container we're in and the environment around us. I think that, that's a tall order. And as you can see, there's no, that's hard. And when morals conflict, so when you've got a moral or an ethical dilemma, there's no one solution or right answer. That's right. right. So that, that, but that's the compassion wisdom and we just do our best. So you may not have the right or wrong answer, but again, it's a process and then it's a wisdom that comes out of it and we're going to get it wrong. And we're not, maybe that in retrospect, ah, that wasn't the most compassionate response. But at the end of the day, for me, and I think for most people, I think, well, actually I think everybody wants to wake up in the morning and just try like, I don't think any, I don't think anyone wakes up thinking, how can I be the, you know, biggest jerk today? Or how could I make, there might be somebody out there. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think even people like that want, want peace and ease. It's just, it's mixed up with, well, we won't get into all that, but like, I think overall, we all want peace and happiness and ease. And we wake up thinking, I don't think people actually wake up to think, how can I make myself be really uneaseful? Anyways, we can stop. We can, we'll move on. (laughs) I would just say, I'm sad to say, but I do think some people are looking to do evil and it, those aren't the people that that we're talking to, but I, I, and that's why boundaries are important, right? Well, that's, this is, yeah, that's important. Do you think, well, I guess it's neither here nor there. I was going to say, do you think that's sort of um, sociopathic or psychopathic maybe tendencies or? Yeah. I mean, it could be that. It could be that, but I also want to But I hear you boundaries. And yes, I want to say about boundaries that everybody wants what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And most of our desires actually are going to make us miserable. (laughs) getting them. And, you know, that's what, that's what yoga says. That's what the Bhagavad Gita says. Like one desire leads to another desire leads, you know, to suffering. And so in some ways to have someone say, look, this is the container we're in. Here's the boundaries I'm setting. This is my role. You know, we've both had this with students, I'm sure to say that that place you can't go in this container, like that, although it will make them very upset, it is the most compassionate thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we can look at to when we're looking at the larger context, we're there to serve, I'm repeating this, but to serve self and to serve others. So it's kind of same, same. So yes, the boundaries, setting the container, everything you just said, and we're doing that for, for me, for you, for us, we're doing that for the goal here, whether it's me teaching a student, whether it's me with a client, 
um, whatever it may be. So, so it's always in service of, of, of us. And so setting that boundary for myself, if I'm going to be able to help you help yourself and, and so forth, again, it's that compassion wisdom. So we need to make this whole situation going towards that skill in action or going towards that right action in line with my values, in line with your values. And if they conflict, now we need to work at it even more. And it's, it's process, process, process. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy. Do you ever doubt yourself? I mean, I, I feel like when we come together in this very deep, intimate way of I've got my values, you've got yours, our beliefs are different, we're, our perspectives are different, we're looking at the same situation, feeling two completely different ways. I sometimes get really tired, like, whew, we're doing this again, right? Do you ever have any self-doubt? Like, oh my goodness, this is hard work. Never. I'm a hundred percent. I'm the most confident <laughs> person you'll ever meet. <laughs> I have, I mean, it's just a constant, I mean, self-doubt I think is just a constant sort of thing. I work through consistent would be maybe the better word. So yeah. My short what do you do with that? What's, do you have any strategies around that to help yourself move to neutral or to having maybe a little more stability and, you know, connection with yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, much of what we talked about, so the self-compassion practices, the self, you know, the being aware that I'm struggling in the moment, just to go through those through those three components real quick, like that's just really key, knowing you're not alone. And then the self-kindness piece, it's going to depend on the moment. Sometimes it's just a little gesture. I might do this little thumb stroke thing. It's, mm. it's very soothing for me. I don't know if I've shared that with you before, but I can do it pretty much anywhere. Right. I can't always put my hands to my heart or do this. <laughs> you know what I do? I do this under the oh, table. Yeah. Nice. Under the palms kind of sliding yeah, across yeah. one another. And nice. it's so funny because my, my late mother, I always used to see her doing that and think, what is she doing with her hands? And now what do you know? I'm starting to do it. <laughs> just when you bring up your mom, because this, here, my mom, I haven't seen my mom do it per se, but it, for whatever reason, it reminds me of my mom. I don't know why. So it's very soothing. It's like this warm hug from my mom. So that, um, and then another thing with this self-doubt, so that helps, I will say, just that the practice in the moment of, of that, oh, one more is a phrase. And sometimes when it's, well, saying something is real heavy and I'm feeling a lot of self-doubt or shame or whatever the, whatever it is, if it's real heavy and dark, I'll go in the mirror and I just look at myself. I might start crying when I do this here, um, which is fine. Um, as long as you don't feel uncomfortable, <laughs> don't make anyone else. I'm a crier. <laughs> but I just, sometimes I just look in the mirror and I just look at myself and I just, I love you. Like I talk to me and I just look at my eyes. I'm like, I love you. And I, it's okay, Shelly, you're good. You're good. And Oh, yeah, and that, it just, it, it's just, it's nice. And I think that might be awkward and weird for a lot of people, but it just takes practice. And, and for me, it's been powerful and it just helps. And then the other thing that really, really, really helps that maybe we don't talk about enough, but my goodness, I have to share it with you and everybody listening. Those self-doubt moments, you know, what's really helped. <laughs> I think even more than the self-compassion is that people around me, my dear, dear friends and family who believe in me. So that's what keeps me going. It's just, you know, go to them, hang on to them and they can show me. And there's just a small handful and I'm crying, which is great. Again, nobody, please feel uncomfortable with this. This is good. (laughs) I'm happy. I'm full of love. But it's those tears are expressions of the truth. And so I, I will really say it's, the, oh, I just think of those, those people and um, it's them that have really got me through those times. And I will, I want to talk about this really, really briefly, but it really speaks to what we're, what I just said here. And there was a, a research study, it's in the book chapter on compassion and pain care. And it was a year long study with 10 people. They were in an integrative rehab hospital with and They were people that had you know, lifelong chronic pain and what they wanted to 
the aim of the study was that they wanted to see what are the factors and they wanted to investigate self-care of the, of the patients in this integrative rehab hospital. And they wanted to see, you know, what are the factors that contribute and why aren't people taking the steps towards self-care, which is the question we've already talked about here. And so what they did was they provided them with loving, compassionate care for the whole year, which that's, you know, how you do that, of course, is that's another podcast in and of itself, but they just really provided, they were there for these 10 people. And like I said, lots of love and compassion and what they found, and it was a qualitative study. And so they had focus groups and interviewed, and then they, they quantify that data. And what they found was that it was only until these 10 people felt worthy, whole, cared for from others. So it wasn't until they felt love from others until they then could take the steps towards their own self-care. That blows me away. That speaks to me and that speaks to what I just shared. You know, maybe just the self-critical or whatever experiences I've had, you know, maybe just that love from others and that, you know, that no believe in you and you just need to hear that and feel it. A mirror back at us. And then it helps, it helps me. So that my own experience corroborates with that, you know, one research study and also corroborates with, you know, I think some of what I've seen in the clinic over the past 24 years, like there's, I haven't measured it and I have no way of knowing, but just intuitively I do, I have seen that those that have more compassionate healthcare providers, they, they tend to then take on that care and concern for themselves. And many, many of us, you know, might, we come from all different backgrounds and different trauma and different things. And we might not have had that support, or we maybe really haven't had that care. Maybe we were told we're worthless. And some of those things that maybe have been told to us. And for the record, I haven't been told. I just want, because my dear mom and dad have been amazing. I just wanted <laughs> to say, um, just out of respect for them, they're very loving and I haven't had anything um, like that from them. Um, so, but anyways. You know, it, it reminds me, I call it my bad girl complex that if I think I'm going to get in trouble or somebody's mad at me and I don't know why, or maybe they're telling me, like, I just immediately go to this, like, oh my gosh, I must be bad. And I have to remind myself, Amy, you're not bad. You, you're doing your best. You may have screwed up. <laughs> you do screw up a lot. But once somebody points it out to you, you apologize. You, you've got a good heart. You try to make it right. And I think I couldn't believe I wasn't bad until, like you said, I had other loving people from my family, to my colleagues, to my students, to my husband, mirror back to me like, oh, honey, you're not bad. Mm. Yeah. You made a mistake. Oh, well. Yeah. It's beautiful. And it's a very different flavor. I want to see what you think of this as well. And people listening reflect on it too. And for me, it's a very different flavor than wanting someone's approval mm. or a people pleaser or needing being codependent and needing that feedback. That's for me, not what this is at all. You would agree. It's a very I different totally agree. feeling. Yes. It's a feeling of, of, of love it's, and support. Actually a surrender into receiving the love that they want to give us. Oh, that's nice. That's how I feel. Like if I'm in control, I'm not receiving but as soon as I kind of, like you said at the beginning, create the space and let whatever needs to be, be, and someone just naturally, spontaneously wants to offer to me the, the mirror that I am good, I am wonderful, that, that's, that's like the warm sunshine on you when you are least expecting it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, well, Shelly, we have gone deep into self-compassion and how it connects to compliance and adherence with our clients. I'm so happy you talked briefly about the three main components of self-compassion and some of the misconceptions. If people want to study more with you around self-compassion, pain care, and or pelvic health, mm -hmm. and maybe the intersection of all three, where can we find you? What are you doing? What's 
I just, I want to help you kind of promote yourself and, and that might be awkward, but you're doing us a favor by telling us what you're up to and how we can study with you. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And I've been done a lot of practice on feeling comfortable and unapologetic of, because I I've come, I just want to say, I've really come to that over the years of being a soul you know, an entrepreneur or being a sole proprietor, you have to do this stuff. And so I'm, this is good. I, I, I do not feel ashamed or embarrassed or awkward to share this stuff because I, the self-compassion practices too have helped me to thank you for, um, for sharing my website on here. So first of all, I'll just say it's physioyoga.ca in case anyone's just listening to the podcast. And if you go to the offerings on there, you can go down to upcoming events. Well, anything there will show you, but events will always show you what I have coming up, whether it's online or in person. And that's any topic from pelvic health to compassion to, to pain and then if you go to on that offerings and then you don't have to go through every tab, there's a bunch, but of course our book is on them there and everything, but there's a lot of resources as well. We do have a book club webinar series and we finished the live portion, but you can still access all of the recordings and it's, yeah, it's through Embodia. It's, it's great. There's, I think, what is it? 11 or 12 of us, different contributors, it's, you know, almost 25 hours of content. We've got practices along with the presentations and it, it's just, it's a beautiful club with all the, it goes through each and every chapter and all the different, the chapter contributors. The book that we're talking about for oh, those sorry. who are not seeing this is called Yoga and Science in Pain Care by Shelley Prosco, Marlisa Sullivan, and Neil Pearson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with many contributors, you know, maybe, and that, well, the online courses and videos that I have a lot, I have some paid practices on there mm-hmm. and some paid products. And that's where you're going to see the courses and the webinars that are all pre-recorded. So pretty much this page you're on gives you anything of mine that's pre-recorded. And then when you get through some of that paid stuff, there is a whole bunch of free stuff. I've got free webinars talking about, you know, I've got my med talk on there and my presentations I've done at different academic conferences on, on how, where yoga therapy fits in, in comprehensive integrative pain management. Mm. And so a lot of these presentations, this is where all the free stuff starts here. You can use these presentations somehow, you know, in your work and trying to integrate into healthcare system. If you need it as a resource or you need someone to back up the research, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of really good free, free That's stuff. Amazing. I'm, I'm just looking like, wow, I could use four exactly. of those videos in my course. Yeah. And they're free. Yeah. Go and you know, I know you have lots on your plate, but if you have a look and have some time to review them, you may find that they're relevant for your students. And the, and you saw in there too, there were the compassion webinars. Those are all free as well. Um, but yeah, I think just go to physioyoga.ca and it's all in there. And I, I'll be at Sitar. I don't know when this is going to air, probably after. Just before Sitar, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So I'll be there and I'm presenting there on some yoga research that we didn't get a time to talk about here today, but I'll be, you can, you can uh, either join us at Sitar or online. You can see that. And yeah, just some different courses. I have new ones coming up in the fall. Well, that will be around the, the study, the yoga research study that, that I did. And then also the pain care aware certification, just, just, it's all on my website. And for pelvic health, I have that pre-recorded course. And of course I want to shout out to Sherry Riba and um, she's got her book pelvic yoga therapy for the whole woman. And I had the honor and privilege of writing the forward for that, but definitely check out her book. I think it'll be there. Spell her name. I'm so excited about this. Yes. It's, it's, I'd like to say, and it was so amazing. So good. It's so good. Great writer. She's a beautiful writer. It's poetic. And it's also, it's very educational. It's evidence informed, very compassionate. It's like a warm, I'd always tell her, it's like a warm hug 
and the practices that she has in the self-exploration and she stays within scope of practice, it is just a must-have for yoga therapists. So you spell her name C-H-E-R-I, so Sherry, Dostal-Riba, so D-O-S-T-A-L, and then R-Y-B-A. Thanks for mentioning that. We're going to have her on the podcast very soon. So yeah, not to miss that one. So she can get dig deep into the, the pelvic portion. Yeah. We didn't really have a chance to speak to that, but. Well, thank you, Shelly, for your time, your energy, your love, your attention. You have just been such a leader in our field from the very, very beginning as yoga therapy is emerging, you're just a, a real constant pillar of, of goodness and also just bringing the evidence-based research, the bringing the goods. You know, anyone who has ever studied with Shelly will tell you that every moment of her teaching is just full of wisdom and really great stuff. So can't go wrong. Mm, wow. Well, thank you for that. That means a lot to me. You know, we work hard to try to, I don't know, just do the best we can. So that means a lot that it might be impactful in some way. Thank mm. you. Thank you, Shelly. I love you very much, Amy. I love you very much, Shelly. It was such a pleasure to speak with Shelly Prosco. And I just want to thank her. As we were getting offline together, we both said that our hearts kind of feel open and full. And it was just really nice to go slowly and share this information about self-compassion. And I actually think as a yoga therapy trainer, this is one of the hardest things to train for our trainees. We've been given these messages since we were very, very young to work harder, work faster, produce, be competitive, be a type A person. And to train that out of someone and flip it on its head and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> the name of the game, the number one aim in yoga therapy is to slow down, create space, feel your feelings and sensations in your body, allow a space for the client to slow down and feel the sensations and watch their own thoughts. And, and that that's actually such an important thing. That's what people are very happy to compensate us for. Somehow in our little brain, we only think that giving them methods and techniques and this breathing thing, and did I choose the right posture? And how is my meditation? And it's kind of self-referenced in a way, like, did I do good as a yoga therapist and throw out enough stuff, enough lifestyle techniques or whatever it is, we, we kind of grade ourselves by, wow, did I assess them well? And did I give them all those tools and techniques? And it's really hard to train that out of people that yes, you have all that knowledge. It's there. You spent two or more years learning it all, but that's secondary to this idea of, can you just be and not be so productive and not have an agenda and a pre-planned outcome? And can we not kind of pat ourselves on the back for being the most amazing yoga therapist because we came up with the right breathing technique for X, Y, Z, right? It's really hard to, to train that because I think we base our self-esteem on what we can produce and the results that we can get instead of really knowing that true self-esteem comes from feeling connected to oneself and therefore the ability to sit with another and, and feel connected and have compassion as true compassion, as Shelly had said. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in our yoga therapy program trying to help our trainees understand less is more, do less, be less, just basically spend time with this human being and get to know them and love them deeply and magical things will happen. And of course you will choose the right breathing technique too, but that's secondary to what Shelly and I talked about today. 
And I think that makes yoga therapy really unique. We have, you know, 60 to 90 minutes to spend with someone and really have that deep connection. So thank you for listening and we will talk next week. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria and Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.